You know, Christianity just can't be true. I mean, just look at the people in church. They sin just like the rest of us. I mean, that's probably a very common perception in the world. They, they look at the church, they see people that are in it, and they see that they're, you know, they, it's, many times they don't see many different than everybody else. So what is the whole deal? I mean, why did Christianity just must not be real? It's just, it's fake. It's nothing. But that's not how Yahweh, how God thinks about it. See, what happens is God, God will look at the church and he'll say Christianity must be true. I mean, just look at the people in church. They sin like everybody else. Yeah, I know. You're probably wondering what's the difference between the two of those statements. And if you look at the words, there's no difference between the two of them. And, and the logic seems to be impeccable on both sides. So, so why are those statements different? And it's because the premise of those statements are different. You see, what the world does, the world looks at the church and judges it and has this idea of salvation by works. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going to be perfect, right? That's, that's what they believe. They believe you're never going to make a mistake. You're never going to falter. You're going to be the perfect person. It's all by works. If you're good enough and you work hard enough, you're going to be saved. You're going to be part of God's family. That's what the world believes. But see, according to God, in order to be, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be redeemed. It's not a salvation by works, because only God can save sinners. There's no other way. I cannot do enough good to make me and to buy myself a ticket to eternity with Christ. There's nothing I could do. I could give away everything I have. I could dedicate myself to the poor. I could, I could die helping people. It's not going to get me there. Because only God can save. And see, God proves that Christianity is real by His grace. He gives us grace, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We don't do anything to get it. Now, some people argue, well, you got to believe. Yeah, but that's not exactly work. I mean, we believe in a lot of things, and we very easily believe in a lot of things in this world. So it's not difficult, it's not hard work to believe in Christ. But it's more than just believing, it's trusting. See, our lives, yours and my life, it's not an afterthought. This is not some whim that God has that he just, you know, he had nothing else to do, so he decided to put us here, and we're just his little toy things. He's just playing with us like a child with a toy. He's not going to abandon us and get tired of us. We all know, we all had kids, we were kids ourselves. We get a new toy. After a while, that new toy loses its luster. We just don't want to play with it anymore. That's why we have garage sales, all right? 
We get rid of all the old toys and stuff that we don't want anymore. God doesn't stop. Because if he did, if God stopped wanting us and stopped wanting to be in a relationship with us, he would stop being God. So, so why? Why does, he, why does he give us grace? Why does he care about us? Why, does he, why is he so patient with us? It, it's not because we risk the chance of being failures, because believe me, we are all failures. In all of our lives, we've all failed. It's because God never wants his purpose to fail. He never wants his will to not happen and not come to fruition. He He wants his purpose in us, which is to glorify him, to succeed. His grace cannot and will not be defeated. Understand, there's nothing. I mean, we, we look at the world today. And we look at society, and, and we must understand there's nothing in all of creation, whether it's in the seen realm or the unseen realm, that can cause God to give up his commitment to save us eternally. I was talking to someone this last week, and they told me they just finally came to, and this person's been a believer for a long time, just came to the realization that you have God on this side and you have Satan on this side, but they're not equal. God is much greater. Yes, and he's not going to give up. Paul states this fact in Romans eight. He says, "For I am sure." This is he says, "I'm sure of this. There's no doubt in my mind that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God." In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, we think we think we're separated. Satan wants us to think we're separated. We, you know, we make a mistake. We do something. You know, we fall back into a sin again, and we think that's it. God wants nothing to do with you now. You've done it. You've blown it. God's like, no, you haven't. I'm still here. Repent. Come back. We're good. I'll forget about that one too. It's done. Why is he so committed to us? It's definitely not because of anything that we've done. We're not, you know, I, I think sometimes people in this world think there's just something amazing about themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm sorry everybody likes me because I'm just such a great person. No. There's nothing about us that would attract God to us. It's not what we've done. It's not for our sake that he died. We're going to be talking about that, obviously, in the next couple weeks, whether it be in Easter time. It's not, it's not because of anything we've done that we get his grace. It's for his sake that we get grace. Paul goes on in Romans. He says this in verse 25 of chapter 3. He says, whom God put, he's talking about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means Propitiation by his blood, which means he is a substitute for us. He died for us on the cross to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
And this is this is the key. This verse 26 is the key here. It says, for what it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did God send Jesus Christ to die for us? It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we were just so great. It was so that he could be glorified, so that he could be shown as the one who is just and who justifies those who put their faith in Christ. Every sin we've ever committed or are committing or will commit grieves his heart. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, we don't have to worry about our sin when we do it, when we're committing it, when we're falling for temptation. It grieves him every time. But in spite of our sin, he is saving us and will not stop doing so until we're standing before him in heaven. Why? Now, you you may think it's because of his love. I mean, I mean, isn't God love? Isn't that what they say all the time? God is love. His love is... There are many other definitions of what God is. Love is, yes, one of them. And yes, God is the epitome of love. God is what we should work to attain when it comes to love. But the greater reason we're going to see today for him not pouring out his wrath upon us, the wrath that you and I both deserve, instead, what he does, he pours it on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And it was for God's name's sake, for his praise, and for his glory. So open up to Isaiah 48. We're going to see that that is, again, it's being reiterated. We, can, we keep coming back to this common theme. That why is God doing this? God is doing this for his glory. And this is what God says through Isaiah. He says, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They do all the right things, right? But he says, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Israelites, they were God's chosen people. They are God's chosen people. He called Abraham, at that time his name was Abram, he called him out of the city he was born in, in Ur, in in Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, in that area. Calls him and his family to come to a land he'd never seen before. They are the called out ones. God called them. He chose them. If you go back and you, you look in Psalm 82, it says, when God divided the nations, he calls Israel. Israel wasn't a nation at that time. He, he, he had already planned to call Abram. Ends up changing his name to Abraham. His father dies along the way. But they are God's chosen people. But see, you and I, we too are God's chosen people because he calls us. He called our heart. And we, we responded to him in, at some time in our lives, hopefully, in faith repenting either at an altar or didn't have to be, could have been anywhere. 
So you and I, too, we are called out of the world. So we are God's, we're called by his name. What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. What does Christian mean? Little Christ. We are called by the name of Christ. They call themselves, they call themselves by the name of the Lord. But it was just lip service. They really weren't living it. It says, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. And I'm afraid today we're, we're not very far from that in many churches. May it not be so for us that we just pay lip service to what we call ourselves. See, the Israelites were God's people in name only. That's why I hesitate sometimes to call myself a Christian. Not because I'm ashamed of Christ, but because there are so many people who call themselves Christian who are not Christian by any ways or means. I often use the term follower of Jesus Christ. I follow Christ. That's who we follow. But see, even our lack of devotion to God does not defeat Him. It can't. Because, understand, God has you and me all figured out. And thank God He does. Because I don't have me all figured out. But He does. He has us all figured out throughout history and into the future. God is always faithful with His promises. Even when we've done everything we can to not keep ours, He still is faithful. In spite of what we do and who we are, He is a faithful God. But not because of us. It's because of Him. He goes on in, Isaiah goes on in verse 3. He says, the former things I declared of old. God again is speaking. He says, I, I've declared what happened in the past. They went out of my mouth. I announced them. So God says, whatever's happened, whatever you see throughout history, God declared they would happen beforehand. And then he says, and suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. It's like, you know, when, when, you know, I was, when we play with toys and we move the toys around as a young child, you know, those toys don't normally, at least back when my day, they didn't move by themselves. They do a lot today because they're battery operated, but they just, you know, I would move them around. It's me doing it. God says, I'm the one who said something was going to happen in the past, and then I made it happen. He's the one who makes things happen. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. Oh, he says you're stiff-necked. Oh, this one too. Your forehead brass, you're hard-headed. <laughs> your forehead brass. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. See, it's God. It's Yahweh who is the writer of all history. You know, we sit there and we, we are able to accomplish many things as humans, especially in our society today. It's, it's amazing when you look. You look at technology, you look at what we've done in the last 20 years. 
and you think, wow, isn't that amazing? Aren't we awesome? No, we're not. Because the only reason we were able to do that is because of God. God allowed it or made it happen. It's God alone who's the author of the past. He's the author of our present. And he is the author of our future. God said things would happen, and they did. There's no one who has that ability except for him. So let's look. Let's just look at a couple of these things that he did. In Genesis 6, 6, God predicts that there's going to be a flood. There had never been a flood. It's believed that it probably may have never rained before this date. Water just normally would come up out of the ground. So God says, it's going to rain. Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's going to take you 100 years to do it. For 100 years, he, and this this goes back to Jewish tradition, he and Methuselah preached to the people, warned them. Methuselah was his grandfather. That the flood was coming and to repent, and nobody did. Makes me feel pretty good as a pastor. (laughs) They preached for 100 years and nobody got saved. So I'm doing pretty good. So, but, but see, God said it's going to happen. And guess what? Guess what happened? The water came. And six people survived. That's it. One family survived. God foretold that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. He was. And that his people would possess the land that he was in. They did. Now, granted, think about this. Uh, Sarah was way past childbearing age, and and, and they had no children. And yet God says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He also said that they would go into exile for 400 years, and they did. But he says he's going to bring them out of bondage and back to the promised land in Genesis 15. Look at Joseph. Joseph, Joseph, you know, you thought that he would be, you know, he's going to be killed probably when he, before he went to Egypt, but he ends up in Egypt. And God reveals to him the dreams of Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And basically, because of that, Joseph becomes head of state right below Pharaoh and saves, saves all of Egypt and all of the other lands around them. And ultimately gets reconciled with his own family. Isaiah. In Isaiah, God predicts the rise of Babylon. The rise of Cyrus the Great, the Medo-Persian. He he predicts the exile of the Israelites. He specifically names Cyrus. I know there's an argument about when that was put in there, but it it makes more sense that God revealed that name. But he also predicted the ultimate fall of Babylon and the return of his people to Jerusalem. And guess what happened? Exactly what God said. I mean, these are just a few. These are just a few. It's God alone who knows the future. And in spite of all the proof, in spite of all the things, just like the Israelites, today sometimes we are stiff-necked and we are hard-headed or obstinate brass foreheaded. We're opinionated, self-assured know-it-alls. 
we think we know better than God. We, like the Israelites, refuse to listen to God. Oh, God, I got this. I'm, I'm good. I don't need his help. But see, we've got to remember that God schedules these things. He knows what's going to happen. He knows. But we, like the Israelites, just don't want to listen to him. And on top of that, we don't even have to do the things that God plans for us. He does them so that we can't boast that it's us who did it. That's what he's talking about. He says, I know you would give credit to your to your gods and to your idols if I had if I had not told you beforehand that I was going to do this. It seems sometimes that our world wants nothing more than to not give God credit where credit is due. So God goes on in verse 6. He says, you have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. He's saying, I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. And I didn't tell you before, because if I told you before this, you would have said you were the one doing it. Again, you're brass foreheaded. You would take all the credit for it. You have never heard, you have never known from of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. You were called a rebel. So who's he talking about? What is he saying here? He's saying that he's going to do something new. I believe he, in this, these verses he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about, I'm going to do something new. This is, this is something that nobody would have imagined. Who would have imagined that a man would come as God, God coming as a man, that he would die willingly for the world? Who would have thought of that? Nobody but God. God's going to send his Messiah. And this Messiah would be his one and only special son, Jesus. They did not know his name at that point in time. But think about this. What is Jesus? What is that? That Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. And if you know anything about what Joshua means, Joshua means God saved. Interesting. So Jesus means God saves. And then that kind of what he did? So God is laying down these clues in the name, in history, about what he's going to do. And Jesus is going to die for hard-headed, brass-foreheaded, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people like the Israelites. And like you and me. But he doesn't put it all in one place. 
what he does is he puts a little snippet here. And then he puts a little snippet over here. And he put, and just like, well, why not? Why doesn't he just put it in one place? Everybody would know then. Why are they, why is it hidden? Well, we know that answer now because Paul gives us that answer. In 1 Corinthians. He's talking about what God had planned to do through the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, it says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, I've said this before. Whenever Paul says rulers, he means more than just human kings and governors and so forth. He means the principalities. He means those in the spiritual realm, those who were given authority over the nations. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for they, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If God had taken all of the information he has in the Messiah on the, in the Old Testament, and he brought it all into one book, one prophet, and giving it, they would have been able, Satan and his, I'll just use the term I use, his minions, would have said, ah, wait a minute, we may not want to kill him, because if we do, he redeems the world. Huh. Let's not do it. But see, that was all part of God's plan. That Christ would die. So God doesn't put it all in one place. But he says, I'm going to tell you something new that's going to happen. You've got to watch for it. And I'm going to sit there, and, and you're going to see it, and you're going to know it was God who did it. You cannot give credit to anybody else. And Isaiah emphasizes the fact that we are all treacherous and we would exploit it. See, and that's that's the danger today. Sometimes I think we exploit our salvation. Well, you know, I'm 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 forgiven, so I you know if if I sin a little bit, it's okay. Hmm. That's rationalizing, and that's actually planning to sin, and that's wicked. It's one thing if we're tempted and we falter and we're like, oh, why did I do that, you know, and we repent. It's another thing if we keep going back and we keep going back and we keep going back like a dog to its vomit. That's addiction. That's a sin. That has got a hold of us. It's a stronghold that's inside of us, keeping us from God. believe that this very same reason that God hid what was in the Old Testament, people always wonder why Why is Revelation, why is eschatology, which is a study of the end of things, why is that so hard to understand at times? Why is it not just plainly spelled out what's going to happen? Why, why do we have pre-trib and post-trib and mid-trib? Why do we have pre-millennialism, post-millennialism? And, you know, by the time you read it all, believe me, and I've studied it a lot, it, your head starts spinning. And I don't, I don't fully believe in all, any of them. I, I, take, I take what's possible in all of them and say, okay, these are possible. But why doesn't it just spell it out? Why doesn't God spell it out? Because if he did, you and I would take advantage of it. If we knew exactly when Christ was going to come back, chances are one of us, some of us would go, hmm, what do I need to do? What can I get away with before he comes back? I can repent right before and everything will be fine. All right? That's the human mind. That's how we think. That's what society would do. 
If we knew the whole truth, we would take advantage of that knowledge and we would not trust God in faith. So he reveals a little bit. And then we interpret a lot. <laughs> Believe me. But God says, again, and we ask this question, why does God put up with us? And he says in verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. When, when Moses and the Israelites were in Seth Sinai and they are down at the bottom, Moses has been up on the mountain for a while with God. God's giving him the Ten Commandments. They know he's up there. They see the, hear the thunder. They see the smoke cloud. There, some of the elders have been up there with him. And God says, Moses, the Israelites are sinning. They're worshiping another God. I am going to destroy every single one of them. And Moses is like, oh, no. God says, I will raise up a new nation through you. I mean, Moses is old like Abraham was. God did it before. He can do it again. And Moses says, oh, Lord, don't do that. Because if you do that, the people will say, you brought, the nations will say, you brought your people out here to kill them. And that'll put a bad mark on your name. Your glory will be diminished. Your name will be smeared. So God says, okay, I won't. For my sake, I will not destroy them. And that's what Isaiah, God's saying to Isaiah here. God does not destroy us for his sake, not ours. We deserve annihilation. We deserve eternal judgment. But for his sake, he offers us redemption. And even more so, look at verse 10. He says, Behold, I have refined you. It's not like I have to clean up my act, and believe me, I will, but it's not that I have to do everything myself. God does it for me and through me. I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. You want to know why we have trouble? Sometimes it's because we are trouble. And he needs to refine us in the fire of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory will not, I will not give to another. And what we have here is probably one of the greatest statements in the Bible. And it's the revelation of God's motive for his love and his grace. He puts up with so much from us. When he sends Israel into exile, he limits, he limits their affliction. We saw last week, Babylon ultimately gets judged. Why? Because they were too harsh. God says, I'm giving these people to you. I'm giving my people to you to punish them. They need to be punished. But do not go too far. They went too far. So God is punishing now 
the punishers. Understand, God always gives us better than we deserve. And he does this not for our sake, but for his sake. In Ezekiel 36, he tells Ezekiel, he says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. Again, if you hear it in one place, you're like, okay, that's a possibility. Now you've got it in another place. God is saying it to somebody else, too. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. See, God's saying, I'm going to bring you back. And that's going to be proof that I am God, because I'm going to vindicate you for my name's sake. And what's going to happen at the end of days is Christ is going to come back and he's going to say, this is it. I'm going to, I'm, or he's going to vindicate the word of God, the name of God. The world is going to be totally turned against him. He's going to come and say, I'm God. And he does it through us. Our performance does not secure God's favor. We cannot be good enough. But our lousy performance is used to display his favor. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I still struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation. But when God, when I am victorious, it's not me. It's Christ moving through me. And because of that, God's name is glorified. His love for us only makes sense within the logic of his divine nature. His love for us is all about his divine nature. His love, his glory, and his mercy through Jesus Christ sets him apart from any other God. See, we can't take it for granted. We can't just continue to walk in our sins, continuing going back to the vomit. As the writer of Psalms says, a dog returns to its vomit. And Paul himself addresses this in Romans. He says, what shall I say, say then? Romans 6. Are we, you know, if we get grace because of sin, so the logic, human logic is, if I continue to sin, I continue to get more grace. Don't we teach our kids something similar to that? You clean your room, I'll give you this money. You clean your room, okay, and then if you do this, and so what do they do? They keep doing, well, the more I do, the more money I get. <gasps> Ooh. So that's human logic. So Paul says, that doesn't work here. We can't continue to sin so we get more grace. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you're in your life, you're struggling. If you're struggling with temptation, and I don't mean that you're tempted and you're able to overcome it. I mean, if you're struggling back to the same sin over and over again, you've got to wonder if you've really died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's, we're going to have a baptism on Easter. The two baptisms on Easter Sunday. And when the person is lowered into the water and they come out, that's, that's symbolizing being baptized into the death of Christ. 
We are participating with his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. when, When I baptize them, I don't just hold them down and keep them under. Okay? They come back up. And that's symbolizing the resurrection. That we are now new creation. So we can walk in the newness of life. For we have been united with him in death like this. We shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See what sets God, Yahweh, apart from all the other gods is that Christ died for sinners who don't even listen to him carefully. That is the glory of God that he's never going to give away. God says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he. It's God. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Very words that Jesus uses at the end of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. My hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. God is saying that all of creation reveals the uniqueness of the glory of God. And if that's truth, what is the implications of that? Well, first of all, God will never fail to be God. He's always God, always was God, always will be God. He is the first and the last, no ending, no beginning. He is the creator and sustainer of the whole world. He tells Israel in Isaiah, he says, assemble, or Isaiah 48, verse 14, he says, Assemble all of you and listen. Gather together. Listen to me. Who among them has declared these things? Who said it? Nobody. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. Now what we see here is God switching back. He's he's switching back now looking at Babylon and what's going to happen to Babylon. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning... I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Understand, God chooses whom and whoever he wants to use. No matter what our opinion is, God can use someone. And God is right in his judgment and he's right in his choices. We may not understand them. We may not like them. But those are his choices. He chose Babylon. He chose Cyrus. He's going to, he chose Nebuchadnezzar. He chooses men and women throughout history for his purpose. And God chose the perfect conqueror to come and deal with the core problem. He chose Jesus, his son, to be our Messiah. And it is through Christ that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, as Paul says in Romans. You see, 
And it is throughout our lives, throughout the turbulence of our lives, that God teaches us and He leads us. See, the problem is and the difficulty is that when we're in the midst of our troubles, we very seldom will sit there and say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? What do we do? Poor me. Why am I going through this? Why is this such a struggle? Why do I have this problem? You know, just take it away, God. Just take it away. And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You need this. You need to struggle. Take a chicken. Take a chicken egg that's been fertilized and it has a little baby chicken in it. And that chicken starts to poke at the shell. What do we do? What if we run in and we break all the shell off from around that chicken? What's going to happen to that chicken? It's going to die. Why? Because that chicken has to struggle to get out of it for it to get stronger. You're a bunch of chickens, by the way. Think about that. So when we're struggling with things, we've got to go through them because God wants us to. Now, granted, there are some things that we get into trouble by ourselves, and God just says, okay, fine, do it. You're going to learn from it still. I'm still here. You wanted this? Fine. Do it. See what happens. He did that with Hezekiah. God teaches us. He leads us. Verse 17 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit and leads you in the way you should go. But it doesn't just happen automatically. We have to learn our lessons. And many times, I hate to say it, but I've had to learn my lessons the hard way. And so, and when God comes to me and says, this is what I want you to do, child, and I say no, it matters. It matters. He says in verse 18, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would not, would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. God says, if you had just said yes to me, everything would be different. Everything would be completely different. Your yes and your no matter. And just because God loves us does not mean it's, we're going to be shielded by the hard realities or the bad choices or the lessons that we have to learn. While we could have peace and righteousness and abundance, many times we want our own way, and we refuse to listen to God. And if we had listened, how much better would it have been? I don't know about you, and I'll, I'm just going to be brutally honest here. There, most of the time when I've come through trials that where I'm fighting with God about something, I get to the end of it and I think, if I had just listened to Him at the beginning. This would have been all better. If I had just... Don't we want our kids to do that? <laughs> our kids, as, as my kids get older, I'm watching, thinking about, oh boy, what am I... And I'm trying to instill in them everything I can so that they're ready to approach the world and to be successful in the world. And what's going to happen is they're going to go out and they're going to do the exact opposite of everything I told them about a certain situation. I know this. Why? Because I did this. So they come around, they're going to come back to me and they're going to say, sooner or later they're going to come back and say, Dad, you were right. I'm going to go, yes, 
I knew I was right. But I love you, and so I'm going to let you go through this. I can't force you to do things. You have to learn on your own many times. And that's what God does to us. He never leaves us, but he allows us to stumble because we need to learn. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. What if we had listened? God says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. If you go back and you read um, when the Israelites started taking the promised land, especially when they took um, um, the first city, Jericho. (laughs) I had to think about that for a second. And they go in, the spies go in, they're like, oh, we've heard about you. Think about that. God's word had gone ahead. People were scared of what God had done for the Israelites, what the Israelites had done through God. The God that used to do them to conquer the nations. God's saying, tell them, tell the world, this is what I'm doing for you, Jacob. I'm getting you out. I'm not, you're not overthrowing them. I'm just allowing them to release you. Nobody does that. There comes a moment in each of our lives that we have to decide. Do we want to settle for Babylon? The system of the world that's influenced and manipulated by the evil one? We talked about that last week. Are we going to venture into the redemption that, that's offered us through Christ Jesus? Are we going to enter the kingdom of God? See, see God's going to lead us. He may, he may lead us through the harshest of deserts in our lives. But He always provides what we need to survive. He always provided what the Israelites needed in the desert. And He'll provide everything you need to get through your life. He will. It's not always easy to see. It's not always easy to find. Many times, you know, we have to search for it. Many times he provides it to other people to help us. You know, I don't, I don't see God making manna appear in my front yard for me to go out and pick every day. He provides sticks in my front yard for me to go out and pick up every day. That's what he provides for me. But understand that he provides what we need through the deserts of our lives. He's going to lead us. He's our good Savior, wherever and however He's leading us. But here's the deal. The ultimate wickedness is to refuse His grace and go off in the desert on your own. In your own way. Because to deny God denies His very nature and His grace. When the Israelites first came out of Egypt, they go and they send 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do it. Two of them say they can. And because those ten said no and the people believed them, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. That whole generation was dead by the time they moved into the promised land. The only two people from that generation who made it into the promised land was Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Everybody else died. Their no led to death. Joshua and Caleb's yes led to life in the promised land. It wasn't easy. Caleb says they were going to split up the land, and Caleb says, I'll take the mountains. That's the hard ones. I'll get the the mountain people. That's who I'll take care of. Talk about bravery. 
when we deny God, it hurts us. But when we actually listen to him and do his will, there's blessings for us. God says in verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. No peace is the ultimate result of rejecting God and his grace. Don't resist God's grace in your life and refuse to listen to him. Saturate your mind with his perfect word. Allow him to lead your life. Not just part of it. Don't just give him Sunday morning. Don't just give him part of your life. Give him everything. Parents, give God your children. That's why I I heavily promote praying over your children every night and blessing them. Give them to God. They're His. He wove them in their mother's womb. Not you. As an adopted father, that that hits me really hard. I, I know that I had nothing to do with their birth. But I can do have a lot to do with their life and pushing them to see God. Ultimately, they need to make their own choice, yes. But I need to give them over to God and continue to pray for them. Regularly confess your sins. There are days I have to repent. And thank Him for His amazing grace. We look and looking forward to the day when He's going to set us free from this world. That's the new thing he's doing.